Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. You know, sometimes I, I have some, some story or, or something to get us into the message, but today we just got to get into it because this is good stuff. Um, we're, we're finishing up Jesus's journey to Jerusalem, and um, we're just, we're just going to get into this. I do want to, of course, welcome anyone that's watching online. If you wouldn't mind just typing in the chat that you're with us, where you're from, and maybe what is your favorite Christmas food? Just pop that in there, um, and we'll probably throw something out like that on social media too, see if we get any good ideas from you guys this week. So you can even like hop on there right now on your phone if you want and put it in the chat. Um, but anyway, just a way to engage us. Thank you for joining us from your home, and it's good to see all your guys' faces, at least the top half of them uh, this morning. So and there's a few questions that as we live in this world, and I think any year, but especially a year like this, causes us a lot of introspection, a lot of questions about just like things like, <laughs> who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing um, where will I go when I die? Like there's big life questions that if we live in this world, if we live in relationship, if we can step back and see that there is, there is tension and there are things that are great about the world we live in and then there's things that are still in process, we, we ask ourselves these questions. And these are questions that people often refer to as like, oh, these are the ultimate life questions, right? Like these are the big questions that, that we want to answer and we we hope that the Bible and that Jesus tells us something about these questions because if we're honest, everybody thinks about them, right? I, I don't think there's anyone in here of any age that hasn't thought about one of those questions, you know, like, or why do I have to listen to mom and dad? You know, whatever it is, like all of us in here um, are asking these kind of questions. And if you think about these questions, they actually connect. And the way in which you answer one of these questions will influence the way that you answer or respond with the other ones. Does that make sense? They're not just standalone questions that can be removed from the others. They are interconnected. And as we get into the scripture today, one day this fine, respected man of the community came to Jesus. He was interested specifically in his destiny, his destination, where he was headed. And he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, whoa, there's one of those big questions. Let's just jump into the deep end of the pool right off the bat. And in answering this question, Jesus also gives him insight concerning what or who really matters most in his life. What or who really matters most. And what you decide now about this question in your life and what this guy is finding out will determine where you end up later, what kind of relationship you end up in later, what your destiny actually is. So these things matter. And today's text addresses the important question, what or who should have first place in my life? What or who should have first place in my life? Jesus demands that people give him first place in their lives above all else and all others. It's stated explicitly in Colossians 1.18. Now, the, the context of this scripture today as we jump in is John Mark writing the second gospel sometime between 65 and 68 AD, and he's making a great use of a key eyewitness as we read through the gospels, the apostle Peter. 
And he wrote primarily to a Roman audience that was facing severe persecution during the reign of Nero. These were not happy times. This was not a happy period in history, especially for people that may have been struggling with the the occupation locally here of, of Rome or whatever other persecution they may have been going through. And Jesus is challenging his followers, those that are receiving his teaching, from the end of chapter 8 through chapter 10, he's challenging them about what true discipleship is. That is the context for all of these stories, all of these teachings we are reading. It's not just, oh, that's a, that's a nice, clever story. It's literally, this is what it means to be a true disciple of him. As he's going from Galilee, where his ministry initiated, and journeying to Jerusalem, where it will culminate, he's teaching them, this is what discipleship is. Now, this section where he's teaching them, it's arranged in a way that there's three passion predictions, if you will, where he's saying, hey, here's what's going to happen to me when we get there, you guys. I'm going to tell you this now so you can remember that when stuff gets tough. But here is what is going to happen to me. And then each one of these is followed by a, like a significant instruction of what it means to follow him, to be a disciple of him. And last week, if you remember, we read one of those lessons, and it said that if we want to receive or enter the kingdom of God, we must receive it like a little child. You remember that. You must receive it like a little helpless child, fully reliant on Jesus to enter his kingdom. Now, the account this week of the rich young ruler raises the question, will someone with great wealth and standing receive the kingdom of God like a little helpless child does? This is right after, this isn't separated from the account of you need to receive the kingdom like a little child. It actually accompanies it. It's, it's a part of the same thing. So the question that it leaves us with as we get into the scripture and how I want to frame this as you listen is what must I do or better yet, whom must I trust to inherit eternal life? And you'll see this progression as we read the scripture. The, the guy first comes says, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus shifts it, and we'll talk about that. But it's not just what must I do, but better yet, who must I trust to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? So let's see what the Bible says about that question. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell onto his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
the disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would help us to receive it today. Receive what, what you desire to speak to us, to teach us as followers of you, or maybe as people who are just trying to figure out what it even looks like to follow you and take those first steps. God, would you speak to us through your word today? We love you. We come to you with open hearts and open minds. Would you fill us with your spirit, and would you help us to receive your word today? In Jesus' name, amen. So, how do I inherit eternal life? That's the big question that he comes with here. And first of all, it's this. Like, there's, there's stages in this, as you can see, as Jesus is teaching. And the first one is, inheriting eternal life is actually easier than you might think. It's actually easier than you might think. Jesus was continuing this journey from, to Jerusalem. Our Savior Jesus is engaging the disciples and teaching about, like I said, true discipleship in this forthcoming crucifixion and resurrection. But these disciples, they're, they're students that are struggling to grasp what he's saying. They, every time they're like, oh, that's just, that's so paradigm shifting. I just don't get it. And then they ask silly questions again next time he's teaching them and they're keeping up the cycle. They're like a student that just can't grasp what the teacher's saying. And he just told them that those who are going to enter the kingdom of God must come like a helpless little child. You must come to Jesus with nothing, totally dependent on him. That is the most previous or most recent teaching that he gave them. He says no one can earn the kingdom of God. The requirement is the same for everybody. Simple, childlike reliance on Jesus. <clears throat> it's that easy. Reliance on Jesus. Come to him with nothing. Just be willing to give him everything, all of your trust. And it's the con in the context of this teaching that one who is opposite of a helpless child, this wealthy young ruler, approaches him. And we see this progression happen. That first, in order to inherit eternal life, this, this guy is on this journey to figure out what that looks like, how, how, where his destiny is headed. And first, he needs to go to the right person. If you're looking for where, where am I destined to go, how do I inherit eternal life, you need to bring that to the right person. This man ran to Jesus. Something in him just told him, this is the guy. This is who I need to talk to. And it says that the man had great wealth or many possessions. Luke 18, 18 calls him a ruler. And Matthew 19, 22 says that he's young. And so when we compile all those, that's how we get the rich, many possessions, young ruler. It doesn't say it all in Mark, but that's where that comes from. So he's a man of power, a man of affluence, and a man of influence. By the standards of the day and what might be desired to have mark you as a person in that society, he had it all. But evidently he had heard Jesus teach. 
he knew of him and his teachings, and he was impressed with what he heard. So he didn't even like walk to Jesus. He had this urgent running to him. And he was eager to get to him because he knew that Jesus was setting out on a journey. He didn't know how long he was going to be there, but he knew he needed to have an encounter with him. And with remarkable respect, especially for this day and time, it says that he knelt down before him. He saw Jesus as a distinguished rabbi, and he paid him the honor he deserved and that great teachers at that time would get by kneeling before him. So you have this rich young ruler that humbly comes, kneels before him, and says, what, what do I need to do? So we see this humility that's marked there. So we're like, I'm, I'm reading this. I'm like, gosh, that's a good start. We're off to a good start. This is going well, right? This is going well. So he came in the right way, and he came to the right person. Now, if we think about this, Jesus can identify with this man's status in life. Maybe not on earth, but in the life that Jesus had had, we know that he was young, right? About 30 years old at this point in time. And maybe not as a Jewish carpenter here on earth, but we know that Jesus experienced life as rich as one could, right? We know that he was rich, far richer than this young ruler could possibly imagine. Because as the Son of God, Jesus has, has lived in all of eternity with the glory, the wealth, the love, and the sweet fellowship of his heavenly Father. Like, what more riches could there be than that, right? So he can identify with this rich young ruler. So I say that because what he's about to ask this guy to do is not unfamiliar to him. We can't read this story and be like, oh, Jesus just wants everybody to give away everything and follow him. It's like, no, because Jesus gave away everything to come get you. He gave it all away. What he's asking this guy to do is not unfamiliar to him. He already left everything behind. All his riches, his status, he left that behind to come to earth. Paul says it perfectly in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, puts it this way. And Jesus would say, I am going into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever known. I'm giving it all away. Why? For you. Now I'm going to ask you to give away everything to follow me. I, if I gave away my big all to get you, can you give away your little all to follow me? Can you give away your little all to follow me? I won't ask you to do anything I haven't already done. I am the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now you need to give away yours to get me. That's what he is communicating to this young man. So Jesus is the right person. The, the young ruler came to the right person. Then he needed to ask the right question as he came to him. He starts out and he, he calls Jesus good, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this was an astounding tribute indicating the impression that Jesus had made on him. The Jews never referred to a person other than God as good unless they're qualifying something like, oh, that meal was good, or oh, your place looks good, I see you've redecorated. Like It wasn't something like that person is inherently at the core good. That was something that was reserved in speaking about people and their character for God only. 
Only God is good in the absolute sense of the word. So he, this is a loaded statement when he says, good teacher, good teacher. And Jesus' response in verse 18 plays this out. Because the rich young ruler was awed by Jesus and had this extremely important question to ask him. Now this question is one of the most significant in the Bible for all of humanity. Like we said earlier, this is like one of those ultimate questions, right? Like, how do I inherit eternal life? In the Bible, the gift of life with God is called eternal life, or entering the kingdom of God, or having treasure in heaven, or enjoying the age to come. These are all things that throughout the scriptures as we read speak of the same thing. It's the life of God and with God, and it's the privilege of being a member of God's kingdom, and it must be received with faith in Jesus and reliance on him as a little child. So he asked Jesus, what must I do? What must I do? Now, all religions in the world can be categorized in two ways. They are a do religion or a done religion. Have you guys ever heard that before? Religions can be categorized as either do or done. I'm saved by what I do or I'm saved because of what someone else has done. You can categorize them in that way. Am I saved because of what I do or because of what someone else has done? And Christianity is a done religion slash relationship. Eternal life is not achieved. It is received as a gift based on what Jesus Christ did for us. So the young ruler here has to have a little bit of a change in his theology and a change in his heart because he's coming asking, what can I do? What must I do? But he's missing the point. And Jesus is going to help him shift that by giving him the right answer. Jesus answers the man with a theological question. He says, why do you call me good? No one other than God is good. So he puts the focus where it needs to be. He puts the focus on God. Because as I mentioned, the man's starting point was who? It was himself. He came and he said, what must I do? Now, the rich young ruler was no doubt a good man by the terms of, of his day, by the standards of his day, and he saw in Jesus another good person who he figured could give him some spiritual enlightenment on something that was plaguing his soul. How do I inherit eternal life? How do I make it? What's my destiny? How do I get to this place that you're preaching about, what you're talking about? What do I need to do? How do I need to perform to get there? And he figures Jesus is the, the more spiritually enlightened one that can teach him or tell him about these lingering questions that have been plaguing his soul. And Jesus forces him to focus not on himself, but on God for any hope of genuine goodness and eternal life. Furthermore, Jesus like implicitly confronts him on his evaluation of who Jesus himself is. Because he says, like, you called me good. Is do you know what you're saying with that? Like, if you're calling me good, and our culture says that no one is good except for God alone, are you saying that I'm God? Are you saying I'm God? And if so, wouldn't it be appropriate to follow me, to obey me, to worship me? Like, that is what, if you're saying I'm God, then wouldn't it be worth doing what I say to do to follow me and walk this out? He challenges the young ruler to think about his words carefully, to choose them wisely. And I believe that's a challenge that each one of us should accept and think about as well. It's not the main point here. 
Nevertheless, Jesus is challenging him. Your words matter. The way you talk about me matters. The way you speak about the things of heaven and earth and the things that matter to him matter. So choose your words wisely. Think carefully about them because they matter. And then Jesus doesn't wait for a response from him. He doesn't say, come on, I want to hear your answer. He just goes right into it. He says, you know the commandments, right? You know the commandments. Jesus cites the last six commandments, which address our human relationships with one another. So he says, okay, here's, here's how this plays out and how you relate to others. And the young man responds, teacher, I've kept all those since I was a young boy. We're good. We're good. I've, I've done that. I've done that. Because the man had conducted himself according to the law of God. He had obeyed these things since he was young. So in some external sense, he was probably true. It was, this was probably true. He's like, yeah, I've been, I've been doing that. I've been fulfilling your laws. But like the apostle Paul, he was faultless with respect to the outward demands of the law <clears throat> as taught by the religious teachers of Israel, but there was still something wrong on the inside. And Jesus responds here and with one thing. And he says, I tell you, sell everything. Give it to the poor and follow me. Give it to the poor and follow me. Now, he just addressed the last six commandments, right? And now he's addressing the first. God must be God in our lives. No one and no thing can stand between him and us. And he is addressing that thing with this man. Now, this particular command that Jesus gives this young man is not a general command for everybody, okay? This doesn't mean like, oh, the Bible says go sell everything, give it all away. Like, now, it may be that for you, but this is not to be received as just some general command. For some it is, for some it isn't. But it was specific to this young ruler, his wealth had occupied the place that only God should have in his life. His wealth was the thing. It was occupying a God position in his life. It was his idol. Now, he may have obeyed, relatively speaking, the commands that address human relationships, but he lived in this perpetual disobedience of sin and idolatry when it came to the first and foundational commandment of do not have any gods other than me. He came up short in one crucial area, and Jesus is saying, hey, that's great. You're, you're doing all these things according to the law, but what gets first place in your life? What gets priority? What is the main thing? And Jesus offers him a path of correction. He offers him a path of correction. He offers him a substitute for his wealth. Only when he gives all of that away, his reliance and dependence on that, will he be like a small, vulnerable child with nothing to offer, no power, no status, no wealth, and be able to enter the kingdom of God fully reliant on Jesus. Only then will he actually possess everything. You see, the call to discipleship is a call to radical trust and commitment to Jesus, and that can make us uncomfortable because we live in America. There's plenty of things to make us comfortable. There's plenty of things that we can muster up the power to do to improve our situation. But at the end of the day here, the call to discipleship requires radical trust and obedience to Christ. And he challenges all of us to put away anything 
that is an obstacle to our following him. Anything that gets in the way. You cannot love wealth above all and Jesus above all. It, they just, it doesn't work. And replace wealth with whatever maybe your thing is, because we all have something, right? We all have something. And it's an important question for us to ponder. What is that thing? And now here's where things start to change. We also have to give the right response when Jesus gives us the answer. And the rich young ruler struggled with this. In verse 22, it records the tragic end of their encounter. And this man left, dare I say, stunned. He's just stunned by the response from Jesus. He went away and it says his face fell and he was sad. Other translations say he was grieved or he was grieving. You see, he had many, many possessions. And his gold would continue to be his God as his face fell and he walked away. Jesus' difficult command was met with a no. It was met with a no. The young ruler got the right answer to his question. He just didn't give the right response. James Edwards notes, a person who leads an exemplary life, who even endears himself to the Son of God, can still be an idolater. You can love the things that Jesus teaches and stands for, and you can appreciate his ministry and, and the hope that he gives and what his life stands for, and still be an idolater of something of the flesh or of this world. Just because you say you love Jesus doesn't mean that there aren't some things that are replacing where he's supposed to be in your life. There is a consistent taking of our pulse in this area, kind of checking how, how we're actually doing with this question that needs to take place for the follower of Christ. What, if anything, is currently taking the place that God is supposed to have in my life? <clears throat> now, while it's easier than we think in some ways, it's also harder than you might think. You see, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was to him what the father was to Jesus. Money was to this young ruler what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself is the way that he viewed it. So Jesus then tells his disciples, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus was not condemning, their, condemning wealth and commanding poverty here. That's not what he's saying. He's just, hey, this is tough. This is tough because wealth breeds confidence in oneself, and it can have an addictive quality. It can have an addictive quality. And the Scripture addresses the dangerous attraction throughout the New Testament. It talks about money so much because it can become life's priority, and then the things of God go by the wayside. It easily takes that place. Now, the disciples, they couldn't believe their ears, right? They're like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> so Jesus says it again. He says, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, don't miss this part here. We can read this, and it sounds like Jesus is almost condescending them, saying, children, Right? Like when I read that, I'm like, oh, he's, he's getting them, right? No, he's saying, hey, children. It's this, this term of like compassion and tenderness. He's like, hey, you guys, 
in their, their original word, it becomes much more clear. But it's a tender moment of, hey, come here, come closer, listen again. Then he goes on with this camel illustration. Now, over here and in other places of the country, there's things like elephants and all these huge animals. Where these folks are at, like camel is like one of the largest animals they could imagine. In this illustration of bringing a camel, humps and all, through the eye of a needle would have been pretty ironic and actually funny to the disciples. Like, oh yeah, a rich man entering the kingdom of God, yeah, drag that camel through the eye of that needle and that's how easy it was. So to them, they're like, well, that's absolutely impossible aside from a miracle, aside from supernatural intervention, that is absolutely impossible for somebody to enter the kingdom of God then. That's, that's how they would have received that. So now they're saying, man, this salvation thing is, is harder than we thought, right? Because I, I don't see how I'm going to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And it only takes something like wealth to keep you out of God's kingdom. And they didn't see that coming because Jesus is flipping the standards and the way of thinking at that point in time on its head. <clears throat> Because only God can provide salvation. See, up to this point, it's been all about what can we do? What kind of power, status, what can I offer? What, what is going to earn my way into this kingdom? And last week, we read where he's like, no, 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 you bring nothing. You don't earn this. And they're still not getting it. So he says, you know, so he brings up this illustration. The disciples were just as curious as the rich young ruler as who would inherit the kingdom of God. This wasn't just a question that this one guy had. They're sitting on the edge of their seat wondering as well. And Judaism was guilty of their own prosperity gospel at this point in history as well. They were guilty of it. Wealth and riches were actually seen as evidence of God's favor. So imagine that, that they're coming from this world like, oh, this rich young ruler, God's actually shown favor on him, so this guy is going to be first in line, right? He's going to be first in line, and Jesus is like, no, actually not. Actually, that wealth is going to make it darn near impossible for you outside of supernatural intervention to get into the kingdom of heaven. This is so countercultural to everything they had been raised in as far as religious teaching. Jesus is taking this time to correct bad theology, as he often does. He's saying, actually, wealth can build a barrier to the one thing necessary to entering the kingdom of God, being helpless like a child and trusting fully in Jesus. And then he answers there with one of the greatest theological affirmations in all of the Bible. He says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All things are possible with God. Salvation is not and never has been something man can accomplish. They, they're missing the point. Left to him or herself, you will never make it into God's kingdom and inherit eternal life just on your own it's impossible it's just as impossible as it is for you as it is for the king of some country that has millions billions of dollars it is an act of God it is something that comes from him salvation is has always been and will always be a divine accomplishment through the perfect atonement and sacrificial death of God's son it has nothing to do with what you have to offer, the resume you build, your power, status, and wealth that you gain here on this side of heaven. That is not the point. That is not the point. <clears throat> it's about what's been done for you, not about what you do, right? It's about what Jesus did for us. 
with men on our own, entering God's kingdom and receiving eternal life is impossible. Yet, we can hear that. We can believe that. But does our, do our actions throughout any given week indicate that in the way we live? Does it indicate that in the way we live? All of us need to ask ourselves that question. Because without God, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible and anyone can be saved. Even me. Even you. Like, even that crazy uncle that you're going to have to see over Christmas that you're like, gosh, I don't see any way that God could reach them. Even them, because it is a supernatural, divine action in the first place. It's not about you. If you desire for Christ to be your Savior, you have to replace what you have been looking to as your Savior. I imagine in a room this size, there's at least a couple handfuls of different things that we have collectively been looking for to be our Savior instead of Jesus. Maybe in a perpetual basis, maybe just time to time, but nevertheless, we have to call out those things and address them and give Jesus that place in our lives. We all have something, so what's yours? And I believe this is an excellent question that deserves some pondering. If you're married, deserves some conversation. Deserves consideration. So we know that it can be easier than you think, ultimately, right, to inherit the kingdom of God, but there's some things that can get in the way of that, and it is actually also harder than we think, but it is so much better than we think. It is so much better, and I think this side of heaven, it is really hard for us to wrap our minds around the fullness of the glory of the kingdom of God, and what it will be like to walk in an intimate relationship with our Creator, like, we get glimpses of that here, right? We get glimpses of that, but it is just so much better than we can wrap our minds around. Now, as the disciples get to this last part of the scripture, we, we suspect, as usual, that they have a lot of questions, right? They're, they're thinking these things over, and then Peter, the, the noble spokesperson of the group, um, expresses a perplexed but heartfelt plea here. <clears throat> Peter picks up on the words of Jesus, and he says this. He says, look, we've, we've left everything to follow you. We're good, right? Like, we're good, right, Jesus? Like, we've, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus affirms that whatever you might lose or give up in this present age or present life, for Jesus in the gospel, you will not fail to receive a hundred times over as much this time and in the age to come or in eternal life in the kingdom of God. You leave a little to get a lot. It is so worth it, but when we're holding on white-knuckled to whatever little we have now, it is so hard to let go and see the lot that is before us. The things Jesus notes that we may have to give up are precious things and are not to be taken lightly. Here he says, home, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or land. It may cost that to follow Jesus. And these are the scriptures that we like to pass over because we don't want to acknowledge the reality of what it might cost to follow Jesus, but he's blatant here with it. There may be a cost, but in the end, even these things are a little compared to what there is in eternal life with him. The blessings far outweigh any potential losses. 
In God's kingdom, the benefits and the blessings are simply far too great for us to imagine. And we can't see a list of them. We can't see, like, when we go get a new job, oh, what are the employment benefits? Okay, that's good. Good 401k. Yep, I like that insurance. Good deductible. Like, we can't see all those things. We have to take a step of faith in Jesus and actually believe for these things. We don't get to sign some contract saying, oh, yeah, I like this, you know, this benefit package. Let's go ahead and roll with this. But he promises us it is so worth it, and the blessings far outweigh the losses. Now, there's a final thing here that's another one of those that I like to just pass over if I can. Um, it says that one of the blessings, the surprise blessings, is persecution. Did you guys catch that? Persecution. Its inclusion in this scripture strikes a sobering note of realism for us, for the person who would follow Jesus. It's saying to be a citizen of this kingdom means to share in all that is his. There's an upside to that, and there's a, at least in the temporal sense, not so upside to that, right? But persecution may be part of what this looks like. It may include suffering on his behalf, which ultimately is only a momentary affliction when seen against the promise of eternal life. Just a, just a speck in the span of time that you will be walking with Jesus. But it may be there. But still, the blessing far outweighs the losses. We have to remember that. And this all wraps up with Jesus addressing this be last and come in first kind of thing. Worship team, you can come back up. In verse 31, Jesus begins to contrast the rich young ruler and the servant of the Lord passage that we'll be talking about next week. He's setting up the next discipleship course, if you will. And again, the value system of the current time, the current day and age is being turned on its head. Because in this kingdom, there is a reversal of every earthly standard of position and rank and importance. And Jesus just continues to pound on those things and reshape and correct their theology. God does not evaluate things in the same way that fallen humanity does. Now we're almost 10 full chapters into this gospel. And I pray that you have seen that many times up to this point. But God does not evaluate things the same way that we do. As citizens of his kingdom, his children should think more like him than the world. I pray that through going through this gospel and through your time and prayer and reading and devotion and really digging into who he is, that there's a tra- like a transition or transformation happening inside of each of us where we are starting to look at the world and start to see it more through the eyes of Jesus than through the eyes that we were given when we were born. That we're seeing things with a, a redemptive purpose, with a, a kingdom mindset, with a, gosh, this is hard. Am I going to re- be a part of rejecting this or redeeming this kind of mindset, right? Like, how are we viewing things? Can we as his creation, as his kids, be viewing things more and more like him than the world does. To the general public, the rich young ruler stood first in line, and the poor disciples stood last. By all the status and power and the the way that people measured your status in that society, the rich young ruler was right there top. The disciples were last, but God saw things differently. He saw things from a perspective of eternity. 
and the first become last while the last become first. That's how he wraps up this lesson. He's like, you guys, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Those who are first in their own eyes will be last in God's eyes. It's just a direct attack on pride and whatever you think you have to offer him when he's saying, no, I don't want all that. I just want you full of faith, vulnerable, submitted to following and obeying me and partnering with me on this rescue mission for my kids. Like, I just want you to engage in that with me. I don't care what you have to offer. I don't care how awesome you are. I know you're awesome because I created you, but that's not why you're joining in this with me. I want you to just come like a child, full of faith, and redeem this world to the Father with me. Tim Keller says, the heart of the gospel is about giving up power, pouring out resources, and serving. The center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. It is not pursuing. It is migrating away from it. Because when you are blessed, it is to be a what? A blessing. You are blessed to be a blessing. There is an outpouring of whatever is getting poured into you. Jesus says to the rich young ruler, I want you to imagine a life without money. Just imagine it. All you have is me. Am I really enough? No money, no house, no job, whatever else might be taken from you temporally here in this world. Think of it. If all you have is Jesus, is that enough for you? Is that enough? Do you truly believe the person who has Jesus plus nothing actually has everything? Do you actually believe that for you? (laughs) Because that's a fun meme to throw out, right? That's a fun thing to tell her, hey, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Then you go back and you micromanage your budget spreadsheet and you get anxious about this month's paycheck and oh my gosh, taxes are so much this year and gosh, I can't buy all the gifts for people that I wanted to. But hey, Jesus plus nothing is everything, bro. And then you're just sitting in turmoil about your own situation, but you just told them all they need is Jesus. What about you? What is taking that place in your life? What is causing you that anxiety that you just need to give to him and say, hey, Jesus, you're enough. You're enough. That's the question Jesus puts before this man. And I believe it's the same question he puts before us today. Is he enough? Is Jesus plus nothing actually enough for us, for you, for me? And what is it like to live that out? So as we finish up in this last song, I just ask that you think about that. And that you take that to Jesus, whatever your response is, whatever needs dealt with, whatever needs removed from a current status in your life, I pray that you would give that to him, that you would invite him to take the proper place in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're enough, that you're enough for me, that you're enough for Rod, that you're enough for Jordan, that you're enough for Dan, that you're enough for Katie, that you're enough for all of us, God. We praise you for that, that this isn't just some 
exclusive membership and you're enough for some people that got the membership card or you're enough for for certain people on certain days. God, every day of the week, from the moment we rise, we declare that you are enough. We thank you for that truth. Would you help us to live that out, to speak that hope, to speak that joy, to live it out in our actions, to not just talk about it, but then be loathsome about it and how it manifests itself in our own lives. God, would you give us boldness and courage to preach the good news that we have to bring nothing to you to enter your kingdom, but our faith, our obedience, just like a child. So we thank you for that. We praise you. Would you be working on our hearts? Would you be doing some spiritual surgery on us in places that, that need dealt with right now, God? And we trust you for that. We believe in you for that. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Would you stand as we finish up with the song of worship?